Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome on today's show we have Mike Armstrong. This guy's a powerhouse. I got to meet him there a couple of weeks ago in a group called the Outstanding Network and him and I got chatting about different things and I would describe this guy like a, a human Duracell bunny and um, a lot of people kind of have this description when they get to know Mike Armstrong in the full flesh form and thoughts. And hello, welcome to the show Mike, how are you doing today? I'm uh, absolutely awesome as I usually am. <laughs> that's that's a very interesting you know it's great to be awesome and outstanding all the time just once or twice in a week like you know yeah well I've worked hard all my life to learn the skills and the knowledge and the experience to become awesome so it's not something that happens straight away I was a pretty awesome kid to be honest with you but uh, I've got awesome along the way even more awesome and you can always keep growing you're awesome so who knows where it's going to take me yeah Mike when you were a young guy growing up Give us a little background of what life was like in your family and at that young age. Well, basically, uh, I was an energetic kid, <laughs> as I am an energetic adult. I was into all sports. I was hardly ever in the house. I was out playing football and British Bulldogs and rugby, uh, jumping up and down ramps on my bike, jumping up and down steps on my roller skate, playing killer in the trees and climbing trees. I was just all-action-packed kid, really. I played a lot of sport in schools. I was pretty academic as well. Just had a lot of energy, and I knew how to uh, burn it off, you know, by, by taking part in sports all the time, really. It shows us how, how sports is the, the bread and crumbs of how we interact with society at a young age, isn't that right? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, sport, uh, being a, a sporty kid gives you a great foundation for life because you learn teamwork, which is a big, big, big foundation for life. And you also learn how to be competitive, which I believe is a big, big, big foundation for life. But a lot of people try and, you know, put it off because maybe they're, they're not competitive or their kids aren't competitive. But I think, you know, if you're not competitive with other people, which I have often been in my life, but I'm much more competitive with myself now. And I think that's the person who you've got to compete with. You've got to compete with yourself to be the best you that you can be. And, uh, you know, that involves, you know, just becoming awesome knowing you're awesome, helping other people and then giving you back that you're awesome and just, uh, you know, just keep growing and developing and improving and, you know, if you want to, like I've always had high lofty goals and ambitions and if you want to achieve them, you've got to get better and so that competition with yourself and your goals and your dreams and your ambitions is what pushes you on to get better and to keep improving, to keep doing personal and business and life development and to get you up to the levels you want to get up to in order to achieve what you want to achieve. You know, you and I have, have spoken, introduced each other a short time, but 
when was your first time when you became an entrepreneur? Was it young or was it in your adult, adult age? Basically, my mum and dad got divorced at eight. So I was brought up by a single uh, mother for a few years before she met someone else. And uh, I, I, I think really from around 11, so from a young age, 11, I was more or less self-sufficient money-wise, economy-wise, because my mum couldn't really afford you know, too much treats and that sort of stuff. You know, she always made sure we had our, you know, food and clothes and all that sort of stuff. And we always had uh, decent uh, birthdays and Christmases and all of that. But the rest of it, you know, if we wanted to go and do something, we had to go out and earn the money to do it. But, you know? So I started off recording Sky movies uh, off Sky when it first came out. So I used to record the movies and sell them to the kids in school. And I also used to go to a place called uh, Hypervalue, which used to be in Cardiff uh, city centre. And I used to buy sort of uh, big, large wholesale boxes of matches and sweets and things like that. And I would uh, break them up into sort of smaller quantities and sell them to the kids in school as well. So I was um, naturally entrepreneurial. I was sort of doing wholesale to retail sales. And I was doing uh, streaming service for movies, really. But it was probably called copyright infringement. But I was a kid, I didn't know any better. But I had a bit of a flair for making money because I, I suppose I had to. Yeah, it, it seems like the flair kind of created the passion for all the, the crazy things at the time. When you were selling at the, at the time, did you feel like you were the hot guy on the street giving everyone the, the movies and the, the candy and the matchsticks? What I've learned later on in life is that um, I just like helping people. So I suppose back then I thought I was the kiddie, like, you know, because I was helping my friends who didn't have Sky to watch movies they wouldn't be able to watch otherwise. And I was also, you know, buying stuff in large quantities where you get a cheaper price. And then I was, you know, being able to provide things for people that they couldn't necessarily, you know, get themselves or afford themselves. And I was making it cheaper because I was switched on to know that if you buy stuff in large quantities, then you can, you know, you can get it much cheaper, you know. So I don't know where that come from, really, that negotiation. But you know, a lot of my family, you know, in sales or in business and that sort of thing, you know, aunties and uncles and... My mum was a bit, you know, of a, of a sort of part-time flower arranger whilst bringing up us kids. And so I think it's just, yeah, naturally in, 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 the, in the family, there are negotiators and wheelers and dealers and that sort of thing. And I started off, I suppose, as a wheeler and dealer, a bit like Lord Sugar or something. But I got quickly inspired by uh, Richard Branson to be more sort of corporate and, and higher thinking, higher levels. So I consider Branson to be a more sophisticated entrepreneur than, say, Sugar. But they're both like, excellent entrepreneurs. I would say I'm more, you know, towards the Branson end than the than the market trader and and Lord Sugar end, like you know. So you're selling everything to the kids in school. Were you doing sports as well in school? Yeah, I was uh, the fastest boy in junior school, and I used to win all the sports days, etc. I then um, was one of the three fastest in high school, and uh, the other two fastest were the wingers in the rugby team, and I used to be the number eight because I was a little bit bigger than them, so I was as fast as them, but bigger. And the three, we were all equal, you know, we were all around the same speed. So the two wingers and, my, uh, and myself, we formed a, an awesome team. I was obviously uh, the number eight, and then we had a really good uh, scrum half as well called Tommy Walsh. And we used to do a lot of tries. I used to score a lot of tries down the blind side because I was like quite big for my age, born in September at the front of the queue in the peer group. And so we used to score a lot of tries down the blind side. That. We won the league and cup double for the uh, first three years of high school. And I also played for Old Hiltidians on uh, a Sunday as well, so I played Sunday rugby as well. And I, because I, I was fast as well, I played a lot of sevens rugby. I played a few tournaments on the old arms, uh, Cardiff Arms Park, which was like, you know, our, our Wembley in, in Wales, like, you know, so, yeah, you know, I was uh, very active at rugby and running, but I also did discus, I did, I played for the school baseball team, and I also played for um, a guy called Mark Ring, who was my coach, he was a former Wales uh, rugby star. He was a legend, a really good rugby player, and he was my coach in St. Philip Evans' baseball team. I also played for the school basketball team, football. So I was pretty much, you know, I had good hand-eye coordination. I've been a massive gamer. You know, I was a massive gamer then. I, I, I dropped it when I started working. But I think good hand-eye coordination, and I had speed. So I had pretty much the makings of, of, of most sports, like, you know. And when you were rugby, did you play expansive pass, 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 or was it just have fun on the pitch? I was somebody who enjoyed the rough and tumble. If you like, you know the malls and getting stuck in, and now I'm a sort of uh, get stuck in kind of guy. But also, like I say, I, I still you know, love the, 
the intricacies of the back moves and all of that, especially playing sevens rugby. It's a, it's a sport I still love to watch now because it's such high fast pace, high tempo. You know, the scoreboards are ticking over and over all of the time. So yeah, just I love rugby. It's, it's been a passion of mine all my life. And actually, it's one of my biggest regrets in life is not becoming a professional rugby player because, you know, in hindsight now, uh, that would have been my ideal dream job. And if I'd have become a professional rugby player, I'd have ended up playing for Wales and I probably would have ended up being a British Lion. And probably nothing would have pleased me more than that. But I ended up going down a sales path. And in the end, although that's my biggest regret in life, it may end up being the thing that saved me from just being another rugby player and being the awesome elite business performer that I am. Why do you think you regret this? Well, I regret it because every bone in my fibre says I would have just loved it. It would have just been, like, awesome, you know? But I'm living an awesome life now, so, you know... But the thing is, I regretted it for a long time because maybe in the business world I hadn't quite got to the level I'd got to or I wanted to get to, but I feel now that... I'm not quite at the level I want to get to, but I'm on the path to get there and I know how I'm going to get there and I've got the strategy in place and I know I've got the will in place and I know I can knock any obstacle out of my way, so I know I'm going to get there. So now I don't necessarily regret it as much as I have done when I've been working in sales jobs, if you like, and although I loved sales and I loved sales jobs, it wasn't the ambition and the, and the dream that I, I really wanted to do. I wanted to run my own successful companies, not be a good salesperson or a great salesperson in somebody else's company. And and what interested you towards sales? Well, at uh, 15, when I finished uh, my GCSEs, on the six weeks holiday, or I think you had a bit longer then, eight weeks or something after doing your exams, before starting college, I was invited to go and do a sales job by an uncle of mine for a door-to-door double glazing company called Stay Bright. And I had the summer off. I wanted to earn some money. I was already a wheeler dealer, you know, as a kid. So I just thought, yeah, I'll go do a job in sales. And my uncle didn't actually last that long at the job because it was quite a high turnover job and not many people did last long. But I did because I'm tough. You know, I'm mentally tough. I'm physically tough. I love a challenge. I'm a puzzler. So I love solving problems. So a solutions provider now, but I was a salesperson back then. I hadn't learned the art of uh, solution selling. But I was tough. I was thick skinned. I, I had a bit of the gift of the gap because of probably my Irish connection. My uncle didn't have that. He didn't have the Irish in him. He was from a different part of the family. He was, he was actually my step uncle. He was from my stepfather, who my mother um, remarried uh, after um, she divorced my father. So um, he didn't have what wanted to, to survive that job, but I did and I thrived in it and I ended up enjoying it and earning good money at it. And, you know, I was living an adult life, if you like, in the six weeks holiday or eight weeks holiday before going to college, like, you know, and I was earning good money doing it. I heard there a few days ago that you were into uh, to music. What kind of music were you into? Yeah, a bit later on. Well, that sort of age, 15, 16, I was probably more into the sort of uh, popular music, you know, to, um, you know, what's in the charts and that sort of stuff. Or actually, probably about that age, I was just getting to UB40, and I've always had a bit of a soft spot for reggae and, and also soul. I like a bit of Lionel Richie and some other soul, you know, some stuff from uh, Motown. Because uh, my mother used to be a massive Motown fan, and, and I really liked the music and the ly- lyrical nature of, of the Motown tunes. But then, you know, 15, 16, I was into UB40 and a bit of reggae, and also a bit of rap. I was listening to some rap music. And probably by sort of 17, 18, I was also listening to some popular dance music tracks. And then I started going out clubbing, and I got into house music. So I was a big sort of cheesy quaver, we call it, a raver from the 90s, like, you know? I'd say raving in the 90s must have been, been cool because you had all the big classic tracks at the time, like, you know? Yeah, it was basically, it was the hotbed of music at the time. It was uh, the hotbed of going out because since then, and the age of technology and stuff, now not many people go out, so I lived in the, the prime of partying, really, and I actually did do a, an eight-month stint as a club promoter myself because a lot of my friends were DJs, and, and I had a big circle of friends, of friends who were involved in that scene. And so an opportunity arose one time when a club that I used to like going to on a Friday night shut down, and I seen an opportunity of I had a team in place in order to do something myself, and I knew a friend of mine was managing a, a restaurant which had a basement underneath, which wasn't being used, everything fell into place. So I set up uh, my own club night and I was doing a, a once a week working for a club night and I was earning like a weekly wage working one night a week and then the rest of the week partying 
and advertising my club nights and just out there promoting it, like, you know? That's a cool job to have, to have your own disco party place, you know? Yeah, I loved it. I got a really good uh, friend now who uh, runs Brighton's biggest nightclub and uh, I've been down there doing a bit of networking for him and that. And it's got a bit of a taste for the hospitality trade. I might, I might go back in there and I'm thinking about doing an online event, but in that hospitality sector and, and with DJs and and that sort of thing. So I'd love to get involved in that again because it it's just a cool part of life and a cool part of the world, like you know, and it's something I am passionate about and I think you should always follow your passions. Yeah, if you don't follow your passions, then what's the point of doing what you do like, you know? Exactly. And Mike, when the, the disco finished, did you go on and do sales or what was kind of, what did you do after that, that period of time? Yeah, well, that was opportunist. So basically, I did the six, the six to eight week stint in Staybright and then I enjoyed it so much, I transferred from the Cardiff branch where I was working to the Newport one so I could do evenings and weekends around my college. So I carried on working for the two years I was in college and as soon as I finished my exams, then I went back to full-time work. So I didn't really put that much time and effort into my uh, college work because I was decided I wasn't going to go to university. So I was uh, working evenings and weekends and earning good money. In the second year of college, I dropped a, a subject so I could have another day and a half of work time and earn more money. And then as soon as I finished my exams, I just went straight back to work and just worked full time from then onwards. And so I, was, I went from doing door-to-door field sales to doing a bit of tennis sales. And then when I went full-time, I went back to door-to-door sales again. And at 18 years old, I was uh, running a team. At 20, I got headhunted to go to a competitor, and I run a really good team there. And then at 21, I was uh, earning 40 grand as a team leader, doing lots of sales myself, and also getting an override on my team. And then the nightclub thing dropped in then at 22. And then I, I was looking, basically I decided I had enough of working evenings and weekends, which you had to do in the double glazing door-to-door sector and in the telesales double glazing sector. So I was looking for a, a B2B Monday to Friday, nine to five job. So I ended up doing the club promotion thing and I would have stayed doing that, but the venue sold. So I had to knock it on the head. Otherwise I probably would have done that for the rest of my life because I enjoyed it because I was only done it for eight months and another opportunity wasn't there at the time it finished, I thought, well, I'll go and get another job. So I ended up getting a few more sort of B2B jobs. I was trying to find a company where I could earn the good commissions, like I do into 21 when I was earning 40 grand, mostly commission only. So based on performance and results, I ended up doing a few sort of B2B uh, racking jobs around uh, Cardiff. And I did one in Bristol, I did one in Bridgend, which is sort of like 40 minutes away from Cardiff either side, east and west. And I ended up getting a few points on my license, being a sort of young kid, driving around fast, repping, trying to do appointments uh, as many as you can in a day. So I got up to nine points on my license and I decided I was going to get off the road for a while. Obviously, I had experience of doing telesales, so I took a telesales job in a tech startup business that had, you know, four, they just took on 40 staff through a WDA grant system. So they were a brand new company, no turnover, just a brand new set of staff. I joined the company at that time. And I thought I was going to be there for six months, so I ended up being there for 10 years. What did all these jobs teach about you, Mike? They taught me a lot. They taught me that I had resilience, which was great. I also worked for a lot of bad bosses. So I'd say other than in the double glazing days, the two bosses I worked for, one in the door-to-door in Cardiff and the telesales in Newport, and also the door-to-door actually in Colsey when I went when I got headhunted. Those three, they were decent bosses. One was quite highly tempered, emotional, if you had bad days, but he was decent and he'd give you good training and stuff. And the other guys were good bosses but in the B2B uh, sector especially I had some really bad bosses as well and I think sometimes you can learn more off the bad bosses than the good bosses because it's much easier to learn what not to do and what not to be like than it is to know what to do sometimes so if you actually eradicate all the things you don't like off the bosses you're learning from the horrible bosses then eventually there's only one way to be and that's nice and kind and generous because the bosses that were terrible to me were the ones who sort of like took me on, gave me no training, gave me no education, gave me no like systems or processes, and just said, you know, go out there and make me loads of money, like, you know. And, and so I was able to, in some of those jobs, get up and running and do well, but some of them would take you a long time because of contracts and lack of knowledge and experience. And some of those companies, they'd be like on your case straight away that you're not doing the business. And you're like, well, I not really give me anything, like, you know what I mean? So I learned a lot off that and that helped me my 10 years stint in a tech startup, which is called Credit Save, it helped me a lot because it taught me what not to be. And I was an awesome boss in uh, in that company. All my team loved me. I got promoted nine times in six years. 
I had a really good time because I knew what not to do. And that only left me what to do. That was all I was left after I knew what not to do. It seems like you were a guy in a mission to get promoted that amount of times and that length of time is quite amazing. Yeah, well, we we went from 40 staff up to 250 staff over that 10-year period. And we went from no turnover to 25 million in the 10-year period. I actually was one of the two top sellers as soon as I got there, me and a really good friend of mine, Lisa Baker. And uh, we remained the two top sellers for the 10 years that I was there. But I went through a massive promotion path of of getting promoted to nine times in six years but I always maintained being one of the top two sellers so it was always me and Lisa were the top people in the company so I ended up doing a a management job and uh, becoming and being one of the top sellers uh, one of the top two plus I also managed the reseller affiliate channel so I was doing three what is normally three full-time jobs on my own well and becoming one of the, the top two sellers what are your tips or why did you become so successful in that department? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So there's so many reasons why. So, you know, I'll list some of them for you. One is I'm competitive, so I want to be at the top. So I study my competition and see where their weak spots are and see how I can outperform them. And in most jobs, most sales jobs, the easy way to outperform the top sellers is just do more than them. So make more phone calls, send more emails, do more proposals, close more business come in a bit earlier, leave a bit later, work longer hours. You know, that's how you can outperform your competitors. And in Wales, it's not like London or super cities where everyone's competing with each other. You know, um, I was in an environment where people were working the sort of like nine till five or maybe half eight till half five. So I was sort of doing the eight till six or eight till half six. You know, I could have done a lot more than that and a lot longer than that, but I was able to beat everybody just by... You know, being competitive, staying longer, being willing to turn up and show up and do it every day, but also learn. So I'm a massive learner. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm into psychology. So I've been a studier of people. You know, I'm I'm into learning how to communicate and interact with as many people on the planet as possible because I don't want to just stick to my comfort zone and my niche or my peer group. I want to be able to connect and network with everybody. And I did back then. So I was, you know, so I was doing lots of self-development, lots of education, lots of learning, lots of competitiveness. I was analyzing my competition. I was learning the product. I was learning the competitor's product so I can, you know, get more business. I'm just cost of improvement and getting better. And if you have that in life, you will improve and you will get better. In being that competitive, does other aspects of your life kind of break down to in order to be successful in that area? I think all elite performance athletes have issues with uh, certain balances with the rest of their life because you've got to be self-focused, self, you know, one-dimensional. You know, you've got to be completely focused on you. So I know, like some Olympic rowers and lots of Olympic sports fans, you know, their, their relationships and their marriages have struggled because of their superior focus, really, or their, you know, their selfishness. Really, you've got to be selfish to become a, an awesome person. You can't always do it to somebody around somebody else's wants and needs. So I think, you know, yeah, there has been times. But I am a people person, so I've always tried to keep in contact with people. And, you know, um, I'm very aware that in the sales environment and in a hardcore life and a hardcore environment, you've got to blow off a bit of steam as well. So because of obviously my clubbing days and stuff as well, I learned to play, uh, work hard, play hard. So, you know, and I go out and I play with the people I want to play with. So... I am able to sustain relationships, even though, you know, I'm focused on doing my job and working long hours and stuff. So a bit of a workaholic, if you like. But um, I'm able to sustain those relationships as well by socialising and partying with those people, the people I want to spend time with. Competitive nature, do you have ways to relax and kind of figure out that I need to have time for Mike in order to be so successful and competitive? Yeah, I think, you know, I've always been into exercise because I was an action-packed kid. But I think, you know, over the years, I I did let that go a little bit from time to time. I I always tried to do a bit of five-a-side football in an evening on a Wednesday or something. I've done some five-a-side rugby. You know, I've had stints where I've been running or or using the bike, but it was hard to sustain because I was building a career. And so, you know, but I always have done bits of exercise in that. I've also been very, very self-aware of my my own feelings and my own sort of how I am at the time. So if I felt like, you know, I've been doing too much, I would then, you know, have a weekend of chilling and relaxing, you know, or I um, would get out in the sun and go for strolls or walks and be mindful of of myself and the situation. And I'm I'm a sun worshipper, so 
as soon as there's any sunshine, I'm out, I'm usually out in the front garden or back garden, drinking some cider and, and enjoying the rays. But usually on my phone working or whatever. But you know, I I find that that's a good balance. Like you know, I I can work on my mobile phone a lot of the time from anywhere. Um, you know, wasn't so much back then in my working days, but that was just when phones were coming out and that. But uh, yeah, I've always been able to you know. I've always been able to sustain long-term performance by just being aware of myself and doing not all of the things I do now because I've, I've learned a lot more in personal development, but doing a lot of stuff that was logical to me back then that I knew, you know, it's like it's like if you've got a car and you're constantly driving up and down the motorway under miles an hour and you don't put no oil in the engine, sooner or later the engine's going to seize up. So, you know, I was logical that way and realised that if I'm overheating or I'm boiling, or I, you know, not always would I always, you know, take the foot off the gas and, and put some oil in my tank, but but a lot of the time I would. So I think that's what sustained my consistent performance. And it sounds like you were able to understand when burnout would happen. But did you get to that point when you felt like you were burnt out? Yeah, I, I had some phases. Uh, usually, because uh, I'm very target driven, and, and I used to get a big bonus if I hit my target, and nothing if I didn't. So I used to, uh, as a sales manager, especially. I used to uh, have 12 monthly targets and I'd probably hit nine or 10 of them and I'd miss, you know, two or three. And that's when I would feel burnt out because I wouldn't have the elation of hitting target to see me through the tired, the, the exhaustion, if you like. Whereas if I was hit target, I got my bonus in and that, I had the elation to see me through the, 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 the tough weekend that followed because, you know, your month would end usually on a Friday or day, then you'd have the weekend. The two or three weekends that I might have missed target, I'd have been devastated and not really wanted to communicate or do much on those weekends. The weekends that I hit target, I'd be out partying. But whichever way, where I was out partying or miserable for the weekend, I'd have to wake up Monday morning and start a new month again from scratch with the right mindset to be either a top performer or in the later years then to be a manager and motivate other people. So I learned how to motivate people, even if I wasn't necessarily motivated or in whatever condition. You know, I, I could put on a performance. I can bring out the awesome me whenever I want to, even if I've been drinking heavily the day before and I've only had one hour sleep. I can wake up and I can be the awesome me if I need to be. Like, you know, I've learned how to do that, which a lot of um, sports stars have to do as well. They have to, you know, however they're feeling, they, once they're on that track or they're, they're in whenever they're taking action, they got to sometimes just switch it on, like, you know? Why did you feel devastated when you couldn't hit those targets? because I'm goal-orientated and, and to me, achieving your goals is success and missing them is failure. And how would you deal with that failure? Well, I used to sort of mope around a bit, you know, try and take my mind off it by watching, you know, TV or films or getting out and having a walk if the weather was nice or whatever. Just sort of, I learned to just deal with it, you know, try not to let it affect you too much and then just by Monday, just move it to the back of your mind and move on. And as a higher performer, do you feel like there are like two versions of Mike, the high performer Mike and the Mike that kind of feel like life is running by or was it just all one Mike? Uh, no, I think I've pretty much been, you know, the Mike Armstrong. I've got uh, two accounts on pretty much all social media, which is Michael Armstrong and Mike Armstrong. And Mike Armstrong was more, you know, my corporate account and the Michael Armstrong was more my local account. And, you know, a lot of my family and friends know me as Michael, but some call me Mike, but a lot in business, I'm always Mike. So I suppose, like, I've, I've just launched a company called Mike Armstrong Limited, and I'm going to be an author, speaker, and a mentor going around the world. And I'm going to do that as Mike Armstrong. You know, because that is like the A1 level of me, but the Mike Armstrong is like, you know, just five degrees less or something, maybe. I don't know. I just think it's all mixed up now. I've never really set it out to be two. I just, I like to have two accounts because I like to do so much marketing. And because if I got one account, people would get put off by how much marketing I was doing. So I could do twice as much marketing by having two accounts. Yeah. Mike, you support and try to mentor and be helped to everyone. When did you discover that you could support and help anyone? Well, you know, uh, straight away, really. You know, because I was, you know, young, 11, you know, in the entrepreneurial world of wheeling and dealing and stuff, and I suppose building friendships and networks at that sort of low level. When I started the sales, you know, that was one of the things I, I just like helping people. I, I'm a, born in September, I'm a Libran. So I'm used to being at the front end of the peer group in the year. And so I always used to have to help the smaller, younger kids anyway in the peer group. I also, um, I helped my brother who's older than me and my mum 
I think, to get through the divorce because they're, they're much more emotional than me and I'm a bit more the strong rock, if you like. So I used to be the, the rock that they, them two would lean on. So I suppose, you know, from eight to 11, I was just a little bit different than a lot of the other kids. I moved around quite a lot as well after my mum and dad's divorce. So I was, you know, able to introduce myself to new friends in new schools and stuff. So I suppose when I went into sales at 16, I was meeting other people who hadn't maybe done all of that. And I was ahead of the queue. And I stayed at the head of the queue. So I've always been ahead of the queue, being born in September. You know, so from an early age, I've just always been a bit taller, a bit faster than the, the, the peer group around me. When I was at 16, I was a bit taller, a bit more experienced, a bit more chopsy or whatever. So I ended up being like a, a bit of a, a helper to the manager and the team leaders and that sort of thing. And I just like helping people. So I was always somebody who was willing to voice my opinion. I was always that kid in school who would put my hand up and answer the question when no one else wanted to. So yeah, I, I'm willing to put myself forward. And so that's why I, I so 16, even when I was doing door to door, you know, just new into the job, I was helping people. You know, and then, you know, 18 was when I first got my first manager's job. And like I say, uh, 23, I think it was when I, no, uh, yeah, 23, when I went to Credit Save, I was there 10 years. And, you know, within four months of being there, I was one of the four founding members of the Key Account team. So they, they started off with four people. And uh, I was one of those four people. So I was one of the four best sellers in the company within the four months I was there, the first four months. And I was assistant to the manager of the team straight away. And then after like coming up to about two years, I didn't think the manager was going anywhere. So I ended up taking manager's job on the sales floor, which is the SME prospects rather than the key accounts, which I, I was used to selling. So I thought that's my route into management. I ended up doing that for a few months. And they replaced me with my old boss then, the one who I thought was never going anywhere. I ended up in his job and he ended up in the, the SME job. So they thought I could do a better job. and. And uh, from there, I, I had seven people at the time. So we'd gone from four to seven in that two year period. I took on the team with a 300 grand target and I did 360. And then the next year they, they put it up to 600 and I did 680. And then next year they put it up to 900 and I did, I think 940. So just under a million. And of the same seven people for the three years. So we were doing lots of efficiency, improvement, training, lots of, you know, lots of the core skills you need to improve a sales team. And then after three years, they let me take on more staff. And I grew that team then to doing 1.7 million new business revenue. And we had 4 million in the pot of customers that had grown up over an eight year period that we were having to renew. So I, I had a target of 5.7 million when I left. Wow. It sounds like, Mike, you've been a natural born leader from day one. And if people asked you, Mike, what are the skills as a leader that you bring? What do you think they would be? Well, number one is... You know, I, I got asked the question on social media recently by somebody who's running a company. They were on my social media and they were saying, you know, um, she broke down in front of her team in the lockdown situation and in this environment. And, and that's OK to do that because, you know, it's just showing that she's real and that. And I was thinking, not the best thing to do as a leader because, you know, you're going to put uh, doubt in the, the followers mind. So, you know, I think, you know, I'm emotionally tough. And so, you know, I'm able to handle pressure. I've been in pressurized situations all my life. And I believe under pressure is our uh, call to us to diamond. So, uh, you know, I've been made into a diamond with hard, tough edges, and I can cut through stuff, you know, blockages in my way. I've been sort of turned into a diamond over the, the lifetime of the situation. And, and that's pretty much, uh, you know, how I... So I think a leader should be somebody who's, you know, at the front of the battle, bringing the team along. Also somebody who's willing to share and educate and give past knowledge down to others. Because, you know, that's the only way you can bring the next generation through is by sharing the knowledge and sharing what you've learned, etc. So I think that's important for leaders to do that as well. And I think, yeah, also strategy. You know, most good leaders have got to have good strategy. And I've always been into puzzling and problem solving and, you know, I'm playing lots of uh, strategic games like chess and gaming. And I played um, Pac-Man on the old Atari and lots of other games, Donkey Kong. I played lots of sports games and, and different games on and strategy games on the Spectrum, ZX, these are sort of early computers. And then I played a lot of games on the Nintendo and I was always interested in getting moving up levels and, and competing, the, uh, beating the bosses and getting to the next level and beating the boss and then completing the game. So I think, yeah, my progressive nature, so my strategies, you know, in working out how to solve problems and to, to beat that game or beat that boss or, or win at chess or win at pool, you know, or win at sports, that strategy along with that, you know, 
steely determination to to not give in and to and to bring the team through with you, plus also to educate people and to to educate the next generation to help them and bring them through. I think some of those are the key strengths of a leader. That is so true, and I totally agree with what you're saying there. You know, the leader leads and the, the team follows regardless of what situation arises. Mike, you tell a story about helping an individual. I wonder if you can tell us about that. Yeah, um, uh, later on in life, my story of how I helped a friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, uh, in 2017, I think it was, 2017, I was on a, a journey of personal development for probably about a year after getting over my own sort of uh, obstacle in life. The one thing really that just didn't go my way and uh, it caused a few years of sort of plateauing really, lack of motivation, lack of drive. And I was on a personal development journey to get myself over that situation and and doing well at that, doing lots of goal setting and starting to tick off those goals. And then out of the blue uh, one Saturday evening, I got a phone call off an old clubbing friend of mine from the clubbing days. And I got a phone call basically saying like, I'm high on drugs, I'm addicted to drugs, I'm living on the streets, and if I don't get off the streets soon, I'm going to be dead. Is that anything you can do to help? And at the time, I had a spare room in the house that I was living in. I was sharing the house with another friend of mine who also actually knew this, this friend of mine, so we'd all, all known each other from the past. And he's somebody who had some mental health issues at the time. He just fell far down further than he should ever have gone because of a lack of support structure and stuff, because he was a friend of mine from Cardiff and he moved up to the north of England and was away from his family and his friends. He moved up there to be with his new wife. They married and they had kids, but then he, he divorced her and he was living on his own and he's hanging around with a bad crowd and it just escalated and he ended up falling hard and falling deep. And he phoned me out of the blue and, you know, I'm a very loyal friend and you know, I didn't care what situation he was in. I had a spare room. I said for him to come and stay. A couple of days later then, he lets me know he's arrived at Newport Station. So I drive down from, I'm about 40 minutes away from Newport Station. I drive down to pick him up. And there's another one of him, another person in the same sort of condition, situation. So I said, okay, no worries, I'll put you both up. So I, I, I lent them some clothes, got them showered, etc. I got them off the stuff that they were on for a few days so that I could have a decent conversation with them. So about two or three days later then, I sat down with the pair of them and I gave them some ground rules about, you know, how I could help them and what they'd have to do in order for me to help them. And the one I didn't know um, didn't really like my rules, I don't think, and we didn't have that existing bond. So, you know, I, I, I took him back to Newport, put him on a train and sent him to the north of England. They were actually living in Brighton or uh, Bournemouth, actually, sorry, Bournemouth on the streets at the time when they come to me. I sent him back home to the north of England just to be with his family because obviously uh, he was a bit off the stuff by then and so I could trust him to get back to the north of England and hopefully go home. But Mark decided, my friend Mark decided he could live with me on those conditions. And I said to him, like, you know, I give him some tough love. I told him, like, you know, I'm not giving him no chances. He's got to play by my rules or that's it, like, you know. So he knew he was in a much better position with me than he was ever going to be on his own when he'd fallen down to. So he trusted in me. I managed to get him off the addiction onto prescription stuff. And I managed to work him down, wean him down off the prescription stuff over a long period of time. A lot of this started because he had a bad a back problem up in the north of England and he was taking prescription drugs. And then he went on to illegal drugs and then he got another bad crowd. and. You know, he was a victim of these, um, you know, uh, county drug dealers who try and get you to be mules for them and that sort of thing. He just, just he, you know, he had a bad back, he had mental health problems, he was just not in a very good uh, place. And I managed to get him off all his prescription drugs, etc. And, and eventually I got him back into the working world, back uh, achieving his own goals and dreams because, you know, I'm big into short, medium and long-term goals and got him doing that. And now he's a partner of mine in a, in, in a sort of side hustle that I got, which is a property maintenance and management business because he's a tradesman. Wow. And this time you're supporting a friend, but were you able to kind of help him through motivation and all the things that you were figuring out yourself that you could apply with, with this friend? Yeah, I was I was sharing with him a lot of the skills and the stuff and the determination. I was basically, you know, letting him suck off me some of my energy because he needed that energy in order to go and do his own goals and drives and stuff and I you know I'm, I'm happy to share advice I'm happy to share motivation I'm happy to you know I got him 
I was using a strategy at the time with my uh, small, medium and long-term goals of writing them on yellow post-it notes and putting them all around my mirror. And I got him to write some yellow post-it notes of what he wanted to achieve and put them all around his mirror. And or actually, he, he didn't have a mirror in uh, his bedroom. So he, had to, he put them on the wall. He just put them on the wall so he could see them every day. And the joy in the yellow post-it strategy is ripping them off. So it's like, you know, it's like a sign of achievement. You know, you just ripped it off, scrunch it into a ball and chuck it in the bin. It's like that. That's another one done. Thank you very much. So, um, yeah, I just I just taught him to be the better, more awesome person that he could be rather than the victim that he allowed himself to turn into. Yeah, and it seems like you, in another aspect, it sounds like you mentored him in some way to get him to where he was to where he is, if that makes sense. Yes, definitely. I would say he probably was my first uh, life mentor client, you know, rather than, you know, I've mentored salespeople, you know, all the time through my career, you know, in that sort of uh, role as a manager, as a team leader, as a supervisor, as a a sales director, as a business development director, all that sort of thing. It was my job to manage the needs of the people below me from a work point of view. But I also used to be a bit of a, a nanny and help with their lives because, you know, good salespeople, if they get distracted by their life, they become bad salespeople. So you learn to manage their life as well. But I suppose he was my first ever life mentee. And uh, I showed him the way, if you like, on how to get back on track and how to improve his life. And he's been doing that ever since, really. So uh, it's fantastic. And I know this is going to sound silly, but did you feel that you got some satisfaction that you were able to help a guy that was a friend and get him to where he is in some way? Yeah, I suppose I felt awesome, you know, to actually, to, you know, and he's very grateful and he tells me all the time how thankful he is for what I've done for him and all the rest of that. So I think, you know, doing good for others does make you feel good, you know. It, it, to me, I'm not a materialistic person at all, so it makes me feel much better than buying a car or buying a ring or buying some shiny thing you know actually helping somebody in their life and with their with their struggles is because I can help them that to me is it's much better than you know buying stuff and that so you know, money's not the answer to enjoyment to me especially and I'm somebody who likes people I love people and I like experiences and, and the best experiences you can have are with others shared experiences so, you know, I shared a massive bonding experience with a friend of mine who maybe not seen so much because he was living in the north of England and I'm in South Wales. But I did go by and see him now and then when I was up that part of the country because I used to be a national sales director. I used to do a lot of travelling. So if I was going past, I would pop by and say hello because, like I say, I'm a loyal friend and I wanted to pop in and see how he was. And I actually warned him about a year or two in that year or two I hadn't seen him but about two probably about two years before I told him if he doesn't get out of his situation he's going to end up spiraling out of control so I actually foresaw it and it happened and he was uh, luckily I was able to put him up and uh, and get him through the problem like you know Mike you said that um, you get more joy from helping people than material why is that? Well because like you're born with nothing, you die with nothing, yeah? The game of life, you know, it's a bit like going into the casino, like, you know, you go into the casino, you go in with nothing, you cash the money out or whatever, or you find a way of making some money, then you play some games and you're either up or you're down, and then you go out again. But, you know, ultimately, if you enjoy that experience, then you've had a good time. If you hate the fact that, you know, you've lost and you had a bad time, if you enjoy the winnings, you've had a good time. I think life is a bigger version of that, and you're either winning or you're losing, but you're generally... You know, you're going up and down, you know, through a lot of, a lot of part of life until you really find what it is you want to do and, and how to make money doing that. You spend a lot of time going up and down. And so that's, you know, that could be uh, highs and lows and highs and lows, etc. But actually, if you take away all those highs and lows, so you don't get low when you haven't got many things and many objects and stuff, and you don't go too high when you're actually a bit flush and you've got all those shiny things because they don't really give you much satisfaction other than a short-term buzz from acquiring them. If you can sort of take those highs and lows away and just be more consistent all the way through life, you know, especially if you're consistent following a path that you want to follow because eventually there's the pot of gold that you want, whatever that pot of gold looks like for you, that, that big goal or that big achievement. If you can be consistent and enjoy the journey along the way, and you know, having the things or not having the things or whatever, it doesn't really matter, does it? You know, 
if you're up, just carry on. If you're down, just carry on. You know what I mean? Does it matter? You're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to take it with you when you're gone anyway. So just don't worry if you've got it. Don't worry if you have, if you, if you have it. Mike, you're a high performer achiever, and in doing what you do, it feels like you're on the way to achieving success. But is there any heroes or any people you look up that you want to be in life? Yeah, so uh, from an early age, like I said, Richard Branson was the guy I aspired to be because Richard Branson was the entrepreneur that I knew. You know, he was the most known. And uh, it's important in life to be known because, you know, if you want to impact lots of people, then you can't do that by hiding away in a cave or hiding away in the back of your head or whatever. So, you know, if you want to be known and help lots of people, then and Richard Branson was the one who was out there being known, doing things, making things happen. And, and he was the one that I could see was having fun whilst doing it. So, you know, most of the people I've seen in business seem to be miserable and unhappy. And uh, he was the one who was having fun, enjoying himself and all of that. So, and, and I'm somebody who likes to, you know, enjoy life, etc. So he was a sort of benchmark. So Richard Branson was an early inspiration. I've always kept an eye on his career and him through throughout his life. I've always, you know, um, I suppose he's been on my radar whenever he's on the news or whenever he's doing whatever he's doing. You know, all the acquisitions through, like, you know, the airlines and the trains and the, and the uh, media, you know, and all that. I've sort of always been aware of him and the mobile phones. You know, I've always kept an eye on what he's been involved in. And, um, and then in my 20s and 30s, I was pretty much self-reliant on educating myself, learning off Google and YouTube and people around me and, and, and you know, clients and all sorts of things, picking the best little gold nuggets off as many people as I could. I, I've met a lot of people in my life, you know, having a long-term career in sales and in management. So I've met a lot of people and I used to take little bits of gold here, little bits of gold there and think, oh, I'll use that for myself, I'll use that for myself. I never really found anyone else that I wanted to follow or learn from. And then in 2017, when I started doing my own personal development journey, and I started you know, doing my own get goal setting and stuff to try and get over this incident that happened to me that I, I wanted to recover from, really. It was a financial problem and a divorce and all sorts of things. So I was plateauing for a number of years, and I thought, you know, I've got to get over this and, and get back into being the awesome me that I know I can be and not this sort of lesser being who I don't really know who he is, who's lost the drive and the ambition. So I started working on myself. And a little bit later on that year, I think it was in May that year, I think, um, I ended up in a meeting, a chance meeting that I wasn't supposed to be at with a guy called Grant Cardone and his uh, wife, Elena Cardone, and their kids. They were over in London doing some chats to try and uh, work on a, a coming over to the UK for a tour. And good friends of mine, because I, I joined a network in 2012 when I first went self-employed. I joined a business network called Intrabiz, which is Wales' biggest business network now. They were a little network then, and I've helped them massively grow with my sales and marketing strategies. And because I've helped them and we're really good friends and I'm a bit of a strategist towards them and I've trained them on social media and all of that, they liked me to go to the London Business Show with them. So I, I was volunteering to go to the London Business Show because they pay my expenses and whatever, and then I wouldn't have to pay to be there myself. So I would network on behalf of Intrabiz and on behalf of myself. So I was like two hat networking or networking on behalf of my other network colleagues as well. So and Paul knew I, I would work all the hours under the sun, which is paid for staff wouldn't necessarily do because paid for staff don't. So I'd go for the, to the expo for two days, work really, really hard, and I'd get paid in leads that I generate from the expo. I, I would just volunteer to do it, like you know. But I was saving myself a lot of money from having to pay to exhibit there myself. So it was like a win-win relationship, which is the best sort. And at the end of the, the Wednesday, Thursday expo, we, we stayed in the hotel, I think, Thursday night, and we were due to come back to Cardiff from London on the Friday, and he was making a stop via Kensington in London, this posh hotel, to meet Grant Cardone and Elena Cardone. And he said to me, well, uh, you know, do you want to come with us? Like, you know? And it was a collaboration, a team of people um, speaking to Grant, trying to get him to come to the UK. Uh, and Paul, Paul and Tracy were trying to get him to come to their, their, their Welsh Business Expo, because as well as doing a network, they do uh, Wales' biggest business expo, which is called the Interviz Expo. And so they were trying to get him to be a headline speaker at that event. And so I ended up in the room, basically, and, and, and I witnessed some magic. The fact that this deal was going to come off and they were going to bring Grant to the UK, which they did end up doing. They did that later on in the year in uh, November. This was around May, I think. And I ended up in this room 
and I'm in a, an iconic picture at the time of the team that ended up bringing this big deal off. And I ended up meeting my inspiration to go on and become a global speaker, best-selling author, a mentor, because Grant was living the life I knew I should be living, but I wasn't quite living. That must have been amazing when you realised the light bulb moment of who you should be. Yeah, when Grant came to the UK in the 10X tour, which was in the November, I went to London for a two-day seminar before he came to Wales for the Wales event. So I got to see quite a bit of him, like, you know. And he's on a stage and everything, and he's talking about his sales and his marketing skills and all the rest of that. And I thought, you know what? I know all of that myself, you know? And I was with a client of mine from the network at the event, and actually on the drive up from Cardiff to London, I was talking to him about a lot of different stuff. And actually in the two days that I was at this conference, Grant was talking to the audience about it. And all the audience were like loving it because it was like new stuff they hadn't heard. And my client said to me, you said that in the car on the way up. You said that in the car on the way up. So basically what it proved to me was, is I was as good as Grant Cardone in knowledge, but I was performing at a much lower level. So it, it just gave me that spur to go on and do what I wanted to do, but on a much bigger level, the world stage. It also sounds like, Mike, you know, as a, as a person who is an athlete, you know, and a sports person, they take different things like, you know, from this person, that person, and apply it. And it sounds like you're done and are doing the exact same thing in life and business as well. I'm an, an elite performance athlete, which is why I believe I would have played for Wales and would have been a lion had I gone down the rugby route. You know, I, I knocked it on the head at 15, 16, that sort of age. But had I gone down that route, I know if I'd have been the awesome me that I am, I would have made it as a Welsh rugby player, maybe a captain, probably a captain, a British Lion, maybe a Lions captain. You know what I mean? I really do believe that that's what would have happened. And and I looked at Grant Cardone and I, as all I've seen is, is a guy who's doing what I want to be doing, yeah, at the level I want to be doing. So you're the person now that I'm going to investigate, watch, observe and work out how to become bigger than. Was this a tactic you were doing before or was it something that you did when you when you were in that event watching this guy? Well, like I said, I always really competed with those around me. So, you know, I was already the best in my own situation. I just seen somebody who come along who was operating at a level above me. And I thought it just showed me what the level was. And I just thought I'm capable of operating at our level. So I'm going to press the button in my head that says, you know, get to that level. And I pressed in that two day seminar, I pressed that button and I've been on that mission ever since. Do you feel like something was stopping you to jump on it? Yeah, maybe. The, the the surroundings around me. Because I was in Wales and I only had 250 people to compete with, which is a lot to a lot of people, but I was at the top of those 250 people. I didn't have no one else to compete with to take me up that higher level. So it's a bit like being um, like a runner and you're running against your school, yeah? Or you, you want to take on the county or you're running for your county and you want to take on the country. You know, until you actually see what the country's performance is like, you don't know what level to get yourself up to. And once I seen what level, Grant was a global player and he was operating on a global basis. He was flying around the world as a billionaire in a jet, driving a jet. And I thought, you know, I fancy a bit of that myself. And if he doesn't know any more knowledge than me, then I can make it happen. I know I can. All it takes is a, a clear uh, goal and it takes putting all of the steps in place that you need to put in place to make it happen. So I've been putting those steps in place for the last few years and I'm making it happen. How do you motivate yourself to keep going what you do? Well, it's easy because I, I, I'm crystallized on, on the, the why I'm doing what I do and what, I, what the ultimate end goal is. So I've now got the ultimate end goal in sight. That don't mean that when I hit that end goal, I don't create a new end goal because I will, because I'm progressive. But right now, I've got that massive goal, which you know I've always wanted. I've got it in my sights clear as crystal. And I know I'm going to achieve it. And what is that goal? I'm going to become a best-selling author, global speaker, and a legendary mentor, top 10 percenters, and all the top 1 percenters in the world. Wow, that's a mighty goal. And knowing you, Mike, you will achieve it in time. Yeah, well, that's why I put it out there to the universe, because that puts the pressure on me then to do it, because this is going out on recording. So... I committed to it. I've said, I'm not messing around. You know, if you commit to something, then you'll do all of the actions you need to do to do it. And so I've committed to it on the basis that I know that I will now do it. 
And when you say you commit something, do you visualization? How do you prepare your mind, your body, your spirit? Yeah, I, I, I run the strategy through in my brain and I start visualizing me doing it. So I've been visualizing me, you know, coming out on stage to, you know, pumping house music and, and, and you know, big audiences and high-fiving people on the way down. Just being the awesome. I've been visualizing that for a while now. Wow. And do you, do you meditate as well? Yes, I've always... Like I said, try to keep exercising my memory. So I used to go out on my bike, and that used to be my mindfulness time because I wasn't really thinking of much. So it's when I collect my thoughts and all of that. But more recently now, because I'm doing such major things and I've got such high energy and I've got so much stuff going on and creating so much, etc., that it could become overwhelming. And so to ensure it's not overwhelming, I started doing meditation regularly. I started getting out on my bike like daily now, rather than just one or two times a week. And I've just started doing the things you've got to do in order to achieve the things I want to achieve. Achieving something big, overwhelming, and burnout should be the two common things related to a goal as big as that. Yeah, exactly. So you know, having been a manager of a team, I've always known when sales guys are burnt out and they need a break. You know, some sales managers keep flogging uh, the horse. But you're better off letting the horse go out in the stables and have a chill out for a bit. And then the horse will come back, you know, stronger and fitter and healthier. You know, I learned that at an early age, really, you know, to look after people and manage themselves. And you get a more consistent performance off them rather than like, you know, one or two flying months and then a crap month because they're overwhelmed and they're under pressure and, and whatever. So I've always done that as a manager and I've always managed myself along the same way. So, you know, I'm doing it well at the moment now. Like I say, I've had. I've, never, I've been able to get by without meditation most of my successful sales life because I wasn't doing my, my goals and my dreams. I was just earning a good money and using my skills. But now I'm like doing such major things that that's the stage where it could become overwhelming, which is why I reached out to meditation because I now need it, whereas I, got, I was able to get by without it before. I also think that uh, you're hitting a, a stage now where you need it now than the past you were just figuring out and growing your skills but now you've developed it and you're reaching that awesome stage that you were where you want to be and meditation is more important now i think yes yes definitely plus also um i think you know the sort of strategy that i'm thinking and working out in my head etc is big like you know what i mean so you have a lot of component parts to it so there's a lot of stuff running around your head constantly so therefore you need to clear your mind every now and then and in order to be able to cut through all of that information and actually find the right strategic path through it, like, you know? Yeah. And regarding food and hydration and all that, to, to keep the engine well oiled, do you do that as well? Yeah, so I've started drinking much more water, but again, I was able to survive without much water. I was able to survive without much food. I used to sort of uh, eat a big meal at the end of the day when I come home from being out all day, or I'd have like cereal bars in the car for breakfast, or, you know, or a stop off and have a McDonald's burger at lunchtime, or on the way back driving down the country or whatever. So I used to be able to survive on very little, but still get good performance. But now, I know I'm doing so much and I'm doing so much activity and I'm also exercising and stuff. So I know I've got to put better stuff inside me in order to be able to keep that sustained. So I'm cooking a lot of stuff from raw ingredients. I'm getting more veggies in me. I'm getting some more cereals because I've never been a breakfast person. I've usually been a brunch person. But I'm getting up earlier in the morning now and I'm producing a lot more content and stuff. So I'm having breakfast earlier and I've changed my bread from white to brown and started drinking... Um, like uh, tea that I've got like B6 in and stuff you know so rather than just normal tea I just started adapting some of my my shopping and my beliefs you know what the stuff I'd go out and get that I needed to eat I've changed some of my beliefs and I've changed some of the product now because I know I'm just ramping up that level now where I it's a bit like you know I've been training for four years but the Olympics are coming up now so I need to knock those uh, treats and those goodies on the head a bit and just go full on into the scientific approach like you know yeah and like a very passionate guy but if you could point to one thing what drives you to keep going on a day-to-day basis well i wake up with that goal and, and dream firmly in my sights and so it gets me pumped up and energized straight away but i also do a morning meditation uh, sorry a morning motivation on my podcast every morning for other people but that also motivates me as well. And a lot of mornings I get up, I put some dance music on and I do some exercise to wake up like, you know. 
So yeah, you know, and and, and that's why I'm I'm probably pumping because I've been listening to my favourite tunes for a while, doing some pumping weights and stuff. I am pumping. I'm literally pumping. My heart is pumping, and I'm on fire. Like you know what I mean? Which is why when I get into a Zoom call or I get on an appointment or whatever, like I got so much energy because I've like really built that energy up. Like you know. And with house tracks, do you like listening to house, rave, Fatboy Sim, Carl, Kevin? Uh, I love um, like uh, funky house, okay. so like the old uh, sort of funky music. Because obviously, I like soul music as well. So I like that original Chicago funky house. Yeah. But when I was doing the uh, club nights as well, I used to like it to start off with the funky house, but then get into the real hard house. So I used to like people like Lisa Lashes, the Tidy Boys, that sort of thing. So they were really hard house. Uh, also, though, I used to like some of the trancey music, Paul Oakenfold's Legend, Carl Cox, a mate of mine, Jimpy, used to be amazing. So, you know, um, actually, when I was doing club promotion nights, people used to give me uh, t- uh, mixtapes. It was tapes back then. And, uh, and I used to listen to them all the time in the car and see if they were any good. So I just, I, I, I got a really diverse music thing as well. Like, you know, I love reggae, I love sun- summer tunes, I love um, things like, I love, um, you know, Will, Will I Am. Uh, and I love, you know, the Black Eyed Peas. I love things like, you know, uh, I Predict a Riot, uh, the, the boys from Sheffield, uh, Leeds, Leeds Bay. So I, I got an eclectic mix of uh, music, but, you know, it's mostly house music. I used to listen to it in the car when I was rapping. I'd listen to it on the way up to appointments and listen on the way back. That's what I used to love. I, it was some of my favourite times in the car, and I'd be getting myself pumped up, ready for the, the, the meeting, the appointments and that. And yeah, I, I still listen to dance music now. Uh, I listen to uh, Radio One on a sort of Friday night. I also listen to Kiss FM. Uh, well, it used to be Kiss FM. It's now yeah, no, it was Kiss FM. When I went to work for, I went to work for a station in uh, Bristol called Galaxy FM, Galaxy One Hundred One, and uh, that changed into Kiss FM. I listen to them in the car a lot. So it's still still my music of choice. Really, it's my preferred music. And actually, the music of today now, the dance music of today is the dance music of the 90s remixed. Wow, okay. You, I wouldn't have thought that, but I totally agree with you. Mike, you, you experienced when a little bit of a failure and being able to achieve a goal like that, failure is kind of mixed in, but how do you feel if you haven't achieved this massive goal you're looking to set? Well, the thing is, if you aim for the stars, yeah, you aim for the moon, you'll, if you miss the moon, you'll land on the stars. If you miss the, the, the stars, you'll still land at the top end of the stratosphere. You're not going to really miss by that much. So, like, ultimately, I want to become a global speaker, best-selling author and mentor and an awesome blogger and podcaster as well in the mix, which I already am, really. I'm already an awesome podcaster and a blogger. Those other things, if I don't become a global best-selling author and speaker and mentor, I'm already a great UK speaker, mentor and author. I've already written a book and I'm going to write lots more books. So, you know, ultimately, I've already achieved a lot more than people will anyway. But if I aim for the globe, I'll at least become well-known in Europe. Yeah, so I'll at least be European champion. If I'm, you know, I'm already a national champion, I can become a European champion. But if I go for that number one position in the gold, I might just end up 10th in the world or whatever. I don't know. But I'm going for gold in the world. I'm already building a global network of people that will help me get there. I'm already building up a fan base, etc. I've got time on my side because I'm 42. The people who are in my place right now are people like Grant Cardone and Gary Vee. And I'm a bit of Grant Cardone and Gary Vee wrapped up together. You know, I'm a sales and marketing specialist. And I haven't got the property uh, knowledge that Grant Cardone have got, but I plan on getting it in the next 20 years. And Grant's 60 now, so he got his in these last 20 years. So I've got no reason why I couldn't do what he's done in the last 20 years on the property front. And in the sales and marketing, I'm at the same level as those guys now. You know, so, so why couldn't I beat them by the time I'm 45, 50, 55, 60? You know, I know I beat them. I know I beat them. They, they, they're not going to be able to sustain their level of performance as much as I will. Okay. And Mike, if you met someone on the street and they said, hey, Mike, can you give me one piece of advice? What would it be? A-B-L. A-B-L. Always be learning. Wow. That's fantastic. And if you could give advice to your younger self or take advice from your older self, what would it be? So uh, in answer to that question, I, I would have always said, just make sure you stick at the rugby, you know, and just make you fulfill your dreams, you know, become an awesome Welsh rugby player and become a British Lion. That would be the advice that I would send. 
But as I'm about to become a global author, speaker, a mentor, I'm not sure rugby would have taken me on that path. It may have done, it may not have done. So I'm not sure I would give myself that advice now because I'm quite interested in finding out where I end up going on the journey I'm on, you know? So, uh, so I don't really know. I think I, I would have probably told myself to not put all of my money into one property that I lived in, which is what I've done, and which is what caused me financial problems during the last global credit crunch. I would have said to rent a property and keep investing in other people's properties that pay you an income. Yeah. If you reach a stage, Mike, where you've achieved and you've, you've done everything, what do you think life would look like then? Well, life's going to look like me traveling around the world, meeting all my friends that are in my global network and partying with them and making money from loads of residual ways along the ways, which is going to fund that. Mike, I want to say thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing my sure, man. It's been a blast. We could be speaking for hours and hours and hours about everything, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and uh, keep doing the awesome work of being the awesome podcaster that you are. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.